the PCA One-on-One Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Tina Sire, PCA Chief Impact Officer. Ron Katz currently practices sports law and civil litigation at GCA Law Partners in Mountain View, California. He also serves on Positive Coaching Alliance's Leadership Council. In 2008, he represented 2,000 retired NFL players who won a $28 million verdict against their union. He also represented football great Jim Brown in his case against Electronic Arts. Ron is Chair Emeritus and a co-founder of the Institute of Sports Law and Ethics. He has recently co-authored the book, Sports, Ethics, and Leadership, and an article for the Stanford Law and Policy Review entitled, Changing Sex and Gender Roles and Sport. He received a JD from Harvard Law School, an MA from Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, and a BA from New York University. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today for this PCA one-on-one podcast. My pleasure. So can you tell our audience a little bit about how you got your start playing sports and what your experience was like? Well, I'm from St. Louis, so St. Louis is a very strong sports town. And when I was growing up, uh, baseball was particularly strong. And one of my heroes was Stan Musial, who's a Hall of Fame player for the St. Louis Cardinals. And in fact, my middle name is Stanley. My dad named me after Stan Musial. So uh, as I was growing up, of course, I loved baseball, basketball, and football were the main sports at that time. And I also uh, had good uh, breath, which I guess has stood me in good stead as a lawyer. So I was a cross-country runner, and I, was, I lettered in cross-country in, in high school. Oh, great, great. And um, was it sort of this early love of sports that eventually led to you going into sports law, or how was your story that, that got you into that particular area of the law? It was a combination of two things. I mean, you know, I love sports, just as many people do. And I also like to fight for the underdog. So um, my sports career started in 98 when I represented a group of 400 uh, retired baseball players who had retired before 1947, which meant that they did not get a pension. And then that ultimately led to the football case that you mentioned, where I represented 2,000 retired NFL players. And Although many people might think uh, that NFL player, retired NFL players are really living the life of Riley, uh, the opposite is true. Uh, many of them are poor. Uh, many of them have physical injuries. Many of them have mental injuries from concussions. So uh, I was glad that I was able to help them to receive some money from their images, from their, their own union, actually, which had not paid them. It used their images for 16 years and never paid them at all because the union felt, uh, you know, because they were sort of in a weak position and the union felt they could take advantage of them. And so it was a, it was a great victory, and it, it led to a number of other sports cases, the O'Bannon case and uh, college uh, use of images in college sports. And uh, there's, there's any number of concussion cases out there now, sports cases. But uh, the, the case for the retired NFL players was really the, the first in that wave. And was it some of this experience, um, whether it was with the the baseball players or, um, you know, basketball or football that led you in 2010, you were one of the co-founders of the Institute of Sports Law and Ethics. And I'm curious when you thought about the need for that institute, sort of um, what you saw that need being and what the institute could do. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Sure. Well, I started teaching sports law at uh, Santa Clara University, and then sports law was sort of changing at that time because it was going from solo practitioners to big law firms. I was in a very large law firm at that time. And the reason is very simple. Sports is a huge business. It's a multi-billion dollar business. So uh, when that happens, when uh, the big firms start getting into it, then you see that there's a lot of conferences around the country. And uh, I thought that I could put on a conference as good as anybody else's because of all the the players that I knew. For example, Jim Brown uh, was gracious and, and agreed to speak at our conference, which is not something that he does very, uh, very often. And then as we put on a few of those conferences, I noticed that the thing that people were most interested in were the ethical issues, whether it's performance-enhancing drugs or concussions or amateurism or the use of people's images without their permission. Those were the issues that were most important. So I looked around just to find out if there was an organization that dealt with those issues, and I was actually quite surprised to find out that there was not. I mean, you know, obviously PCA deals with ethical issues, but it's not its main focus is not ethical issues you know, per se. Right. So uh, uh, when I saw that there really was no other organization, I suggested to the dean of the law school at Santa Clara University that Santa Clara might want to start one. Of course, Santa Clara has an ethical mission. And he agreed, and uh, we started one. It was cooperation between the athletic department, the law school, the Markula Center for Applied Ethics, and uh, that was also sort of unheard of in uh, university life because oftentimes university departments are like silos. But here we had this cooperation, and uh, we we started putting on more symposia. And uh, often Jim Thompson, your uh, chair, was uh, spoke at them. And uh, we we also developed an award, the Ethos Award, the Ethics of Sports Award, which we've given out uh, three times now. The last time was to uh, outside the lines, ESPN's outside the line for their work that they've done on ethical issues. So it's been a very satisfying experience. The institute has now switched from uh, from Santa Clara University to the University of the Pacific, but the the mission is still the same, and. Uh, people still have a, a very intense interest in these issues. Yeah, I've enjoyed coming to a number of those events and uh, great, great speakers and topics to kick around. I, it was just a few months ago um, that your recent article, um, Changing Section, Gender Roles, and Sport, came out in the Stanford Law and Policy Review. And I'm curious if it was your work through um, – through the Institute or other things where this topic came up for you and you invested all the time to put that together. And just to sort of tell us a little bit about where that, um, the desire to write about that and explore that topic came from for you. Well, I was invited to submit an article to the Stanford Law and Policy Review. I had been at Stanford for a year in something called the Distinguished Careers Institute in 2016. So I was quite keen to write an article. And from my book, I had uh, done a lot of study about uh, gender, and I was particularly interested in the situation where females want to play on male teams and male males want to play on female teams because that's been a, a legal issue and an ethical issue that has come up. So I started studying that issue, and then it became clear to me that sexual stereotyping was very, very prevalent in sports. Just to give you an example, women were not allowed to compete in the original Olympic Games 
starting in 776 BC, and then those Olympic Games, I think, lasted till about 300 AD, and then they were continued again in 1896. And the only thing that they had in common from 776 BC to 1896 AD was that women were not allowed to participate. And the reason for that was just a stereotype, and generally stereotypes are based on what I would call alternative facts. The alternative fact at that time was that uh, women could not participate in sports because it would impair their childbearing activities. Well, of course, we know now that that's not true. So uh, then we had Title IX come into being in 1972, and of course that was a very important act to equalize things between men and women. But there was still stereotyping that was that was going on. I mean, for example, one of the exceptions to Title IX is the con- so-called contact sports exemption. So they list out five contact sports, football, for example, or wrestling, and they say women cannot participate in those. They, those sports are exempt from Title IX. And again, if we look at it, if we look at that stereotyping, it's it's based on an alternative fact, something that's just not true. And and the fact is that that women are more fragile and that they're going to get hurt. And that's simply not true. Why why would you, if there was a 200-pound woman that wanted to try out for football, she wouldn't be permitted to do so, but a 90-pound man would be permitted to do so. I mean, it just doesn't really make any sense. So then as I started looking at it further, and I think that the contact sports exemption has been eroded a little bit by the courts, uh, because of Title IX, then I started to see a, a third issue arise, which is uh, involving transgender people and intersex people. So transgender people are people who transition from their birth sex to the opposite sex. And intersex people are people that have characteristics of both sexes. So it's not a trivial question in that there's about 150,000 transgender people in the United States that we know of, and one out of every 2,000 births is an intersex person. So it's something that that happens uh, with some frequency, about the same frequency that redheads are born. And uh, there was a lot of uh, complaining about the unfairness of letting these people uh, compete against women in particular. And uh, again, that was supported by an alternative fact. And the alternative fact was that testosterone standing alone is enough to cause somebody to uh, have an unfair advantage, uh, have a, uh, an unfair advantage against in competing against women. And that also is simply not true. There are so many things that go into athletic performance, your training, diet, your coaching, uh, that testosterone is just one of them. So, for example, I just assume because I'm a male that I have more testosterone than Serena Williams, but I could never beat Serena Williams in tennis because tennis isn't just about testosterone. Tennis is about a lot of things. And right. uh, there's never been any proof that testosterone standing alone makes a difference. And that has discriminated against a number of uh, intersex and transgender people. We have two of them are fairly well known today. One of them is named Castor Semenya. She's a South African woman. And she is currently the 800-meter champion in the track event in uh, the Olympics. And uh, it is alleged that she is uh, an intersex person, and her competitors have complained about that. 
And then there's another woman named Duty Chand, an Indian woman, and uh, same situation. But she was actually banned. She was banned by the International Association of Athletic Federations, which controls track and field. And she brought a lawsuit against them in something called the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is the highest court for deciding sports issues. And she won her case, and she won on the basis that testosterone, even though she does have more testosterone than other women, uh, that does not prove that it's unfair for her to compete against other women because of so many factors that go into this. So uh, starting out from a fairly simple place of, you know, men who wanted to compete in women's sports and vice versa, it really got quite complicated and quite interesting. And uh, I think it's particularly interesting when we look at these issues. I mean, transgender issue, obviously, is an important issue in our society right now. Caitlyn Jenner, for example, has gotten a lot of publicity. And, uh, but when we look at it under the microscope of sports, it's always a little bit more focused. And so I think looking at the issue through sports uh, could actually help uh, the issue in a broader society. I mean, for example, uh, Jackie Robinson uh, broke the color line in baseball. Uh, that had a big impact on society at large, even though it was just in the sport of baseball. And I think the same thing is going to happen here, that as people start thinking about these issues in a simpler context than the broader society, in other words, in the context simply of sport, I think it will help people to understand these issues better. And whether they are sexually stereotyping people and whether they are discriminating against people unfairly. Ron, I think um, I read in your paper that in California, um, it, since 2014, I believe our, our high schools have allowed students to participate in the sport based on the gender with which they identify. Um, and I'm curious if you could tell if I, if I have that right, and then what people's fears were about that change, and then if those fears have come to pass, and sort of what that experience has been like, or what can we learn from California for the last two or three years since they took that approach? Well, you're absolutely right that that law did pass, and it's been very uncontroversial. Uh, there have not been, there has not been any litigation that I know of that has flowed from that law. And of course, high school sports, in particularly, in particular, are about inclusiveness. So, of course, we want to include as many people as possible. I think many people wrongly think that being transgender, for example, is a choice, and right. I do not believe that it's a choice, because nobody would make that choice. It, 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 you're really mm -hmm. choosing a very, very difficult life if you make that choice. I think these are people who believe that they are the sex that they believe they are in the same way that I believe that I'm the sex that I am or you believe that you're the sex uh, that you are. So uh, the opposite has happened, though, in Texas. Texas has a law which says that you can only compete against people of the same sex that appears on your birth certificate. And that has actually caused litigation. There was a, a well-known case this past winter of a, a uh, female who was transitioning to male, and according to the Texas law, uh, he had to compete against women in wrestling. And hmm. he won uh, the state champion. He won, won very easily. He, won, he himself wanted to compete against males. But the law would not permit him to compete against males. And that is the main complaint that people have, is that it's unfair. But uh, 
that is not really a complaint that's backed up by evidence, because as I said before, there's absolutely no evidence that uh, testosterone standing alone gives you an athletic advantage. And the other thing that people fear is that there will be fakery. People will fake being, you know, a, a male will fake being a female so that he can have uh, athletic success. And the problem with that argument is that there's just never been a case of that. Nobody has ever done it. And if you can imagine, uh, you know, pretending to be the other sex, you know, because you can't just do it for purposes of, of the athletic competition. You have to be, you know, be that sex for your, you know, the rest of your life as well. Uh, right. People just don't do that. So, and that's one of the problems with these bathroom bills that we've seen. The famous bathroom bill in North Carolina it says you have to use the bathroom of the sex that's on your your birth certificate. And one of the big fears is that there will be fakery that somehow males will want to go into the female bathroom. And there just hasn't been a case of that. I mean, there have been cases of males going into female bathrooms, but they they're males. <laughs> they're perverts. Right. They're people who are lawbreakers. Uh, right. There has been, there has been no recorded case of somebody pretending to be a woman in order to uh, to access a, a restroom. So, what one of the things that we concluded in the article was that we, we made a proposal for handling this situation in sports, and the proposal had to take into account both uh, you know the science that's behind this, and also it had to take into account Title IX, because Title IX is an important law in the United States, and it's actually been a very successful law because the the participation of women in sports since 1972 has gone up by a factor of 10, and very, very effective law. So we have proposed, my co-author and I have proposed a protocol, which, uh, you know, it may not be perfect, but it's it's better than anything else that's out there right now, and that protocol is very simple. The first uh, rule is that separate but equal teams are okay. You can have if you have a team for males and you have a team for females, that's okay. Uh, normally, in other areas of our life, separate but equal is not equal. For example, in racial matters, but right. uh, for this purpose. It is uh, necessary because, uh, on average, men are bigger, stronger, and faster than women. So if you just let everybody go out for every team, there wouldn't be enough women participating. And so we have to preserve their right to participate uh, per Title IX. And then uh, the second rule is that if there's only one team, for example, football for males or field hockey for females, if there's only one team, then people of either sex can go out for that team. Yep. And then the, the third rule, which is the most controversial, is that if someone says they are a male, then they're a male. If someone says that they're a female, then they're a female. And if they live that way, you know, as I said, they can't just do it for purposes of the athletic competition. But if, in fact, they are living as that gender or that sex, however you want to put it, then uh, we take them at their word. Yep. Um, I really excellent on the path forward and your recommendations. I want to come back to those in a second. What is the NCAA's current approach um, to to these issues, and do they have any policies in place right now? Yes, they do. They uh, they actually have some very good policies in place. I think they recognize 
the situation. And I would say that I only have a problem with one part of their policy. And, and what they say is that if you're transitioning from uh, male to female, you have to wait a certain period of time. It's actually not a very certain period of time. You have to wait some undefined period of time because part of this transitioning process has to do with taking hormones and things of that sort. So they they have a waiting period. But the problem with the waiting period is that there's really no science behind it. Nobody really knows how long it takes or how long it doesn't take. And since there's absolutely no evidence that testosterone is performance-enhancing, Standing alone, again, I emphasize standing alone, uh, that's the one place where I disagree with their policy. But I would say that they have a very, very progressive policy. Good, good. And um, one other, I just would like to have you talk to this audience about the history here. Um, I think one of the things you write about is that some of the tests that um, athletes have been required to go through have been really invasive and um, and I think particularly about Renee Richards and that story. And I wonder if you could tell our audience the story of Renee Richards, because not everyone knows her story, and sort of the bar body test, and um, and give us a little bit of that history. Right. Well, Renee Richards was originally named uh, Richard Raskin, and Richard Raskin was uh, seemingly an All-America male. He went to Yale. He was captain of the tennis team at Yale. He was a very good player. Uh, but the the fact of the matter is that Richard Raskin thought that he was a female. He believed that he was a female, and he uh, lived in France for a while, then he came back here, and he started competing in female uh, tennis tournaments. He did well in some of them. He did not so well in others of them. And then he decided that he wanted to, or she decided, excuse me, because she changed her name to Renee Richards, she decided that she wanted to uh, participate in the U.S. Open. She was that good of a player. And she had had not only the hormones, but I believe that she also had the uh, theory, the the, uh, the surgery, the uh, yep. transitional surgery. So this was somebody who you know clearly believed what she was saying, and the, uh, some of the women competitors on the in the uh, women's tour complained, and the U.S. Tennis Association uh, erected a new rule just for her, which said that you had to pass a certain kind of test, which was called the bar body test. It had to do with uh, your chromosomes and things of that sort. But the problem with the bar body test is that it doesn't really prove anything. And so she went to court, and the court looked at it and said, well, obviously this person is a woman. There's just no question about that. She was When she was a male, even though she was a very successful Male, uh, she was an ophthalmological surgeon. Uh, she was suicidal, oh, so no. it was not a you know trivial situation. And the judge said, you know, she's a woman for all purposes, and therefore uh, you may not prohibit her from uh, competing. And she competed. Unfortunately for her, she her first round. Uh, game, her first round match was against the number one seed at the time. Right. She lost. But uh, that's the point. You know, she had, I'm sure, more testosterone than the number one seed. I think it was Virginia Wade, if I'm not, if I'm recalling correctly. And But Virginia Wade beat her because Virginia Wade was a better tennis player. 
So then they've gone from the bar body test to all sorts of other tests, and quite frankly, some of them are just sexually humiliating and sexually de- degrading. I don't want to go yep. into them on a family uh, podcast, but yep. uh, and they, they don't prove anything. They're just, uh, you know, they, they've put these poor uh, individuals through, you know, a horrible process, and at the other end of the process, nothing was proven. And that's why I think that, that my proposal is a better, you know, my proposal is not at all degrading. It's basically, you take someone at their word. Yeah, I mean, you can always check out whether they've been living as a male or living as a female. That's easy enough to do. But uh, there's no, none of this invasive. And there's been a series of about three or four tests, and they've all uh, failed scientifically. There's just no, there's no scientific test. Because now we know that just saying that there's males and females, that's really not descriptive of, of reality because uh, we know that there's intersex people, people who are born with characteristics of both sexes, and they are neither female nor male. Obviously, they choose to live as a male or they choose to live as a female, but there is no reason to discriminate against these people simply because of the way that they were born. I mean, that's just wrong. Right. You talk a lot in the article about gender fluidity, and um, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more sort of what you mean by that and then the impact that it has um, for athletes and some of the, the law around sports. Well, uh, it used to be when I was growing up, you know, you were a male or a female. I mean, it wasn't quite so strict. We had tomboys. We had some boys that were called sissies, et cetera. But, you know, generally it was male and female. And that has been breaking down. Uh, probably the best way to see how it's been breaking down is just to go on Facebook. And I think on Facebook uh, you could choose 58 different genders, you know, male to female, female to male agender, all genders, there was 58 of them, and finally they stopped uh, categorizing. They said you can just choose whatever you want. So there's right. there's just no question that there's a lot more gender fluidity in our society. The people that there are many people who just don't accept that there's just male and female, and, and that's it. Probably the most uh, well-publicized case in recent times was uh, uh, Bruce Jenner transitioning to Caitlyn Jenner again, with the hormones and with the surgery. So there, I think there can be little question about the sincerity of, uh, of Caitlyn Jenner's beliefs because, you know, she has definitely uh, put her body on the line. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the, we just see it more and more. There's a, a, a number of uh, intersex uh, individuals who are uh, world-class models uh, because mm-hmm. of the androgynous look. So uh, gender is just not quite so cut and dried as it used to be, and I think that as that becomes more and more apparent, that we'll see more and more people feeling comfortable saying, "Well, you know, I've had feelings like this. You know, I want to, uh, you know, I'm, maybe I don't, I don't fit exactly in the category of male or female." And I, I think we'll be seeing more of it, and society is going to have to take that into account in some way, shape, or form. I think in terms of sport. I think we just have to follow the science. And of course, we want to have fair competitions, but we don't want to discriminate against people. Certainly, we don't want to discriminate them against them because of the way they were born. And I don't think that we want to discriminate against them because they happen to believe uh, very sincerely that they are a different sex from the sex on their birth certificate. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm curious if you have advice um, for coaches or maybe for parents um, if they're at a competition and they hear other parents sort of questioning a player's gender um, and, you know, it, maybe it's a, a, a girl's playing, a, it's a girl's team and they feel like one of the players looks like a boy or is built like a boy in their mind um, and yet that person is participating and there seems to be sort of a, um, you know, just maybe some commentary on the sideline or maybe even something more vocal what advice would you give a coach or a parent of how to handle that sort of situation? Well, I mean, I think they should follow the protocol that we set out before. And I think that, you know, if there's one word that describes what, what I'm proposing, it's inclusiveness. You know, it's important that everyone feel included because uh, the suicide rate among uh, transgender people is four times as great as it is in the general population. I went to a symposium the other day at Stanford Medical School on this uh, issue, and they were talking about a 10-year-old girl who, uh, you know, she believed that she was a male, and when the children lined up to go to the restroom, she was told to go to the nurse's office. She had to use the restroom at the nurse's office. She couldn't use the male restroom, which is what she wanted to do. So you would think that that's somewhat of an accommodation, but uh, the doctor who was reporting on this case said that that girl became suicidal because of that, because yeah. she just wasn't being accepted for what she was. And then they changed the rules and uh, her condition improved. So this is not just a, uh, you know, I mean, Caitlyn Jenner obviously is a, an entertainment figure. and uh, You know, she's a celebrity, et cetera, et cetera. This is not a problem just for celebrities. This is a problem for real people. And it has very serious consequences. And I think that, you know, any time that people are hearing uh, talk such as what you mentioned, I think they should just bear in mind inclusiveness. That's really the important thing. It's, it's more important to be inclusive, really, than pretty much anything else, particularly at the youth level. You know, we want our youth to be participating. We don't want them to be rejected for who they think they are, and then, you know, which can lead to, to serious problems. Right, and that, that they're the ones deciding which is the right team for them to be playing on based on how they feel about themselves. Um, so I just want to reiterate when you were saying sort of your path forward and your suggestions that separate but, separate but equal is okay um, if there's one team, like a football team for boys, that, that girls or boys should be allowed to try out for that team. And same for field hockey. I, you know, if there's only a girls field hockey team, a, a boy should be allowed to try out for that team. And then finally, and you said most controversially, and maybe I'll have you say a little bit more about that, that if a person says that they feel like they're female, um, then we're going to take them at their word and they're living that way in the rest of their life and that we should let them then participate on a team um, for girls or for women. Um, so what sort of, when you've presented this or when people have read your paper, um, what sort of pushback have you gotten on that third argument? And um, sort of tell us a little bit about that one being controversial. Well, the main argument is that it's not fair, that mm -hmm. these people have an advantage, and it's simply not true. I mean, male-bodied people do not always win the gold medal. Right. Uh, Duty Chan, for example, who's gone through you know a lot of these uh, humiliating, degrading things that we've talked about before, she uh, doesn't win every race. Uh, 
she's actually, uh, her competitive record is not very good. Uh, Castor Semenya, who is the 800-meter uh, champion in uh, the Olympics, has also tried to compete at the 1,500-meter level, and she has not been successful at the 1,500-meter level. So obviously it's the same person, the same amount of testosterone, but there are other factors that go into the 1,500 rather than into the 800. So uh, there are, I mean, I, I don't deny that, you know, if you see someone that looks like a male and you want to say, you want to make the statement, that's just not fair. I, I understand what you're saying. I understand where you're coming from. But at the end of the day, we just have to look at what the science is, first of all. And it's not just that people feel, it's not just that a transgender uh, male feels that he's a male to him. He is a male. That's right. really a big difference. He doesn't feel that he's a male. He is a male. And we have to we have to try to understand. It's very difficult for somebody who doesn't have that condition to understand that. And uh, apparently, I've read many, many case studies now, that these individuals realize this from a very young age. And it was a very interesting, Katie Couric did something on National Geographic uh, Channel about was a featured a a young girl she was like in fifth grade or something she was going to camp and one year she went to camp as a boy and the next year she went to camp as a girl um, you know, it's a very very thoughtful piece uh, you know obviously National Geographic Katie Couric these are not wild eyed radicals uh, this is something that we have to deal with and uh, right. we want to deal with it in a in a fair way and uh, so far we have not done that. Yeah. Well, Ron, I just want to thank you for taking up this topic, and it's it's not an easy one. It's really um, complicated, and I feel like what you've done with it, you, you've made it as um, straightforward as you can. And I really appreciated reading um, your article in the Stanford Law and Policy Review. If people want to find that, is that in the July, is it the July 2017 edition of the review? Right. It's the, the way that you would uh, well, you can just search for my name and, and for the title, which is Changing Sex Slash Gender Roles in Sport. The official site is uh, 28 Stanford Law and Policy Review 215, which is the page number, and then it was published in July of 2017. Well, thanks again um, for taking this on, and, and I really appreciate it, and I feel like it moves the whole discussion and the policy forward, so thank you so much. It's always great to talk to you, Tina. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.